Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, I'm in New York City with three colleagues and former officials, and you can cut the mystique with a knife here. We have three hotshots from the Southern District of New York, and we are going to be talking about the Southern District of New York, the vaunted office we've heard so much about over the last couple years. So you know many of them, but first, Mimi Roca returns to Talking Feds. Mimi is Pace Law's Distinguished Fellow in Criminal Justice and a legal analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. She was for many years in AUSA and then a supervisor in many leadership positions in the office of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District. Mimi, welcome back. Thanks, Harry. Great to be here in person with you. We are also joined again by Jennifer Rogers, a lecturer at Columbia Law School and a longtime member of the SDNY. Who who had more, who logged more time between the two of you? Mimi. Mimi logged more by about three years, maybe? Two but or Jen, three years? But Jen was there first. So. I True. see. True. So kept track. No connection, though. Right. Okay. And finally, Ellie Honig returns to Talking Feds. He's an analyst for CNN as well and a special counsel at Lowenstein Sadler, also for many years a supervisor in the SDNY specializing in organized crime prosecutions. Thanks for having me. I'm definitely the junior member here. (laughs) (laughs) Although, am I right that some of you had the same... Uh, actual supervisory positions as others. You inherited one from the other? We kind of all, there was a, <laughs> it was, you, it, you guys rotated being out on attorney leave and I filled in for one and then the other. Well, right? Mimi was the chief when I was the deputy chief and then you, Ellie, huh. were the deputy chief while I was the chief and then we were co-chiefs. So anyway, <laughs> yes. Organized crime. And yeah. you're, it's all a blur. And you're all good friends. All right. Well, look, I was at Justice for many years and hearing about SDNY, 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 the sovereign district of New York, as it's sometimes known. And we've been hearing about it for two years, both in its institutional role and also for the specific investigations that may remain even in the wake of the Mueller probe. So I'd like to talk about actually both in turn. I think there's a lot of things that people are curious about with such a institution as SDNY. So let me ask you guys, and briefly, if, if one of you says the same thing as the other and you don't have to add, fine. But if you're, you have something different to say. So just quickly, what about... Getting the job, did it take a long time? Were you trying? Was that the thing you really wanted? Did you pass up other things? You know, Mimi, how, what was your introduction to the big, the big leagues of SDNY? <laughs> well, I definitely wanted to be a federal prosecutor in New York, and I applied to the Southern and Eastern Districts, which I think you know, most people do. I had actually clerked in the Eastern District of New York, so I had to sort of uh, – it was, it was hard for me to tell my judge in, in the Eastern District that I was going to the Southern District of New York. But like well, many— Well, why is, I don't understand. Why is that? Because he had been a prosecutor in the Eastern District. I clerked for him in the Eastern District. And, you know, there's a rivalry between the Eastern District and the Southern District of New York. That's severe. To- so you had to— like- Steal yeah, yourself was, to let him know. It, it's yes, like creeps I mean, and bloods. My entire time in the Southern District, I, I'm not sure he ever quite forgave <laughs> me for uh, for going to Southern, but uh, we're still very friendly. He, he married me, in fact, so you know he presided over my wedding. So yeah. I, I guess he yeah. got over it. But like many people, I mean, I had you know who wanted to be federal prosecutors. I just I'd heard about this you know mystical place, the Southern District of New York, and so. It was uh, impossible to turn down an offer from the Southern District of New York. I felt very privileged to have gotten it. I was hired by Mary Jo White at the end of her tenure. Um, You know, when when you get that call from Mary Jo White, you just say yes immediately. I think most people say yes no matter who they get the the offer from. Well, what if you got the offer from EDNY first? You say yes immediately or you hold out for the big, big, big um, leagues? You know, I've heard people have that that debate. I I didn't have that problem. So I was (laughs) able to withdraw my application from Eastern before, you know, I heard it, it. 
it, it definitely is. I, I, I think most people, you know, I've, I've heard maybe one story, and it's pretty legendary, about someone not accepting an offer on the spot from the Southern District of New York. Uh-huh. Speaking of getting off to a great start, you guys, you know, dress up nice and pack your lunch and go for the first day. You've heard yourself about the culture, you know, as Mimi mentioned, but you don't know exactly what to expect. I assume you're a little bit intimidated. But I I, want to hear a little bit of just about the first three, four months when you encounter it. Is your basic impression, whoa, this is just like what they said. This is pretty intense. Or is it like, you know, what was the big deal? Why is everyone so, you know, uh, intimidated by this? It's just a kind of regular job. What was the the feeling? Jan, you want to give a sort of... Yeah, I I was super intimidated. I mean, I had worked at a firm that didn't do any criminal work, so I really had no idea what the difference between an arraignment and an indictment and a presentment. I knew nothing. And it's really overwhelming. I mean, you, you kind of feel like you're jumping into the deep end without knowing how to swim. And what's amazing about it is you feel so overwhelmed the first few weeks. And then by a month in, six weeks in, eight weeks in, you you obviously still know far from everything. But those little basics, like at least you're getting your arms around it so that as the new people behind you start, all of a sudden you're the senior person accompanying them to court, which is ridiculous. (laughs) But that's how it works. But I, I found the learning curve incredibly steep. I was really intimidated by it all. And it was just, you know, walking down the office or next door to my slightly more senior colleagues for help on basically everything, and then you return the favor as people come in behind you. But it is a scary time, for sure. Everyone agree, both a steep learning curve and a scare, and an intimidating one? Yeah, but the great thing about it, and I'm sure this is true at other offices, too, is you have this you feel like you're not doing it alone. You have this great camaraderie with, with the other people who are going through it at the same time. It's It's almost like a Slightly, you know, we're in this battle together, helping each other get through it. And both in terms of that camaraderie, that feeling, but also in terms of the intimidation. Do you did you feel uh, um, it was more keen for you as a woman? I know there were a lot of women there by then, but did you, you know, did, was it sort of tougher to be the new kid? I didn't think so. I don't know. What it's did you think? I, so I guess this is good. Jen and I actually have a different view on something. I I did. In the sense that I thought, and, and I learned this early on, and later when I became a supervisor, I told this to a lot of women. I thought men just, it was more, it came more easily to them to say, you know, I, I can do this. I've got this. I, I know the answer. Whereas I was constantly questioning myself. And I, and I saw that in some other women, not all. So some of it is just personality. But what I later told women I supervised was nobody knows what they're doing at the <laughs> beginning. It's just men are less self-conscious about it. So just act talk like you know what you're doing and you will eventually, yeah. but like that's kind of what you, you, you need to do. So, you know, I don't think that's just a gender thing, but I, I think I, I over my life I've seen that I just think it's harder for women to sort of decide that, you know, oh, oh I can do this even if I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm okay doing it. I mean, I can tell you as a quick n- note of comparison with other offices, I was a newbie in two different offices, and I had the same feeling you did, but with even less support. It was like, okay, here's a file. Go up to the judge and and, and what? You know, Harry Lyndon from the United States, and you know, we're asking for bail, or I think. You <laughs> no, know, the other one. All right, exactly, exactly. All right, so you're there. It sounds like you're getting your sea legs after a few months, et cetera. Um, and now you're you're one of the gangs. So let's talk about the gang. First, you you mentioned this competition with EDNY, which everybody knows, uh, or j- just to tell people, is the Eastern District of New York. So it's the neighboring uh, office. How does that play out? Is it more them than anyone else? Would you also be competitive with the Northern District of Illinois, another prestigious place, or it's just because they're Neighbors and is it is it like a friendly competition or is it a little bit so you know, yeah someone said earlier bloods versus crips I'm, I, yeah. I wouldn't I think the better analogy is Yankees Mets okay right we're, we're sort of playing the same game and we sort of by the way and you guys are the Yankees we're the well it's also <laughs> geographically correct because yeah. yeah. the Yankees play in the Bronx which right. is Southern District right. Mets play in Queens which is yeah. Eastern District yeah. right so um, and the Yankees have this illustrious history right. of World Championships yeah. gosh any Eastern District person is going to be <laughs> hating me for this. the Mets won once sheepish smile um, but. 
you're in the same game and you're you're all trying to do the same thing and there's a certain amount of respect but Southern District, we think we're better uh, just when it comes down to it. And, and East- why do you think, by the way, you think you're better because you were better <laughs> when you were. No, come on. You you were better when you were hired. So overall, you guys are just no, better. No. Or you actually think you were formed in six months into these better prosecutorial machines. Part, part of it, I think, is is neither of those. It's just by being in the Southern District, you have certain cases and certain traditions uh, that, East, that make that, you that, better. That, yeah, that, that no just one walking in the door that because because of these traditions, you're no. But it's just, it's the same thing as getting drafted by the Yankees versus getting drafted by the my favorite team, the Phillies. Like there's more of a history and a tradition and an ethic there. So yeah, but that doesn't make the 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 rookie better that hit. The, well, I'm sorry, but it's what ahead. we think. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All I right. Mean, right. There's now, the, well, we'll cut to the chase at the very end after yeah, you're gone. But listen, do you feel? Do you think this now that you're out? Yes, okay, of course. So, so, Look, so, I'm fully indoctrinated. All right, so explain but, but it the, then. There, there must a, be a reason that's— Well, we, we get the biggest and best cases. We've okay, made them that's over— that's a reason. Yeah, we've made them over the course of our history. Part of that is an accident of geography, right? We're a uh, quarter mile away from Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, hor- you know, many of the, mo- the worst, of course, 9-11, but many other horrible terrorist attacks have happened in Manhattan. Uh, we have mafia in, in our district. I mean, it's sort of the— Every kind of crime you can think of happens in Manhattan. Manhattan's the center of the world, and, and we're in Manhattan. So there's an inherent built-in advantage in terms of getting the highest impact cases. So I think that goes a long way, and a lot of it's just an ethic and attitude. And pe- people people talk about this Southern District swagger, and you yeah. guys are like a mafia, to which I say yes and yes, and we're kind of proud of it. And, and self-aware so you as actually well. think you have a little bit more of a swagger. Than the Eastern District of New York. That's the, or you can name Northern District of Illinois, but I mean, whatever. Because they're pretty. <laughs> the You're just trying to make every Eastern District person. <laughs> All right, well, then choose, their... a, choose the Western. I've, I was in the Western District of Pennsylvania. I tangled with Mary Jo White once on a case, and I you know, somehow wrested about half of it from, but it was pretty clear, you know, even though we're both U.S. attorneys, who was sort of the boss. Um, well, any, anything to, to add to this? You guys are fill in the blank. You're the best because – here, we'll make it multiple choice because, you know, <laughs> the best cases. And so that makes you the, the best, the best people from the start. And that, that makes you the best, the best culture. So you're not the best until you're there for a while and then you're the best. I, um, I, think, it, I think it comes down to a little bit of all of that, certainly everything Ellie said. But from, from the first day you get – to any U.S. attorney's office, you're, you're taught by the people who precede you. Mm-hmm. And the Southern District has had some incredible prosecutors. I think the unit chiefs um, who, you know, for the most part are are people who, you know, have just incredible experience and set of principles about what it means to be a good prosecutor, but also be an aggressive but fair prosecutor. I want to get so, back to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the Southern District teaches you to take chances. It it, it it prides itself on doing that. So so you charge cases that other districts would run away from, maybe, you know, because you're not you're taught to not be afraid to lose a trial, you know, it's okay, and so you know, you should take a risk in charging a case if it's the right thing to do because we know this person is guilty of the crime. There's an aggressiveness, and this is what right. I was talking about with the ethic. And I think if you ask federal agents in the tri-state and beyond area, where do, where would you most like your case to land? They will tell you in Candor, Southern District, and I have I have examples of that. One of the best mafia cases I did under. Jen and Mimi came to us because a New Jersey-based FBI agent was dissatisfied with the way New Jersey handled and charged his case. And he cold called me and I went over and met with him one day and I called probably one of you two and said, okay, this is a nine count racketeering case, including a murder. We charged it. It became a, a huge case. We convicted a captain of murder and he kept bringing us cases afterwards because there's this aggressiveness and sort of fearlessness. We're not cowboys. We can talk about this well, later. Yeah, well, we should, we yeah. don't, right? We don't overcharge. We, we we are very careful about what we do. But there's also this sense of if it's the right thing, I'm going to do it, even if it's a tough case. Yeah. All right. So, and then very briefly, we we've got in the corner there a, a, a phantom figure who's the Eastern District of New York representative here, just for the next 45 seconds, and he says, "What does he say? You're completely full of it. You're not better, or does he say, yeah, you're better, but and but and here's the reason.'" Well, I don't know what he would say. I mean, I think he'd have to concede, um, as Mimi and I know, since we both did hiring for a lot of years, that 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 they 
typically when people go to Eastern, it's because they didn't get in at Southern. I mean, that's... Except Ellie. Well, <laughs> that's true. true. <laughs> Ellie's the reverse. Eastern said no to me. <laughs> Ellie's the reverse. But usually that's true. And in fact, to the point where I heard at one point that they were making on-the-spot offers, the U.S. attorney in Eastern was saying to people, I'm giving right. you this offer and you have to tell me right, right now because right. they didn't want them to say, right. oh, let me go make a quick phone call and right. see where I am at Southern. Um, but look, I mean, they're an amazing office, too. They have a lot of the same characteristics that we do. And it's the only place in the country where there's one FBI office covering the territory that point, two yeah. U.S. attorneys office cover, which means we're kind of no matter what you want to think about who's better and who you know is stealing whose prospects, we're fighting with them for the same cases at the same FBI office with the same agent. So that kind of creates a competition that, you know, would be there regardless of whether there was kind of any other sort of inherent competition there. All right. So I, let's talk about this notion of aggressiveness and the, and maybe SDNY being like a little bit um, more, even more than a little. Although I heard you, uh, you know, emphasize both both Ellen Jen emphasize, but prudent and don't overcharge, et cetera. With, meaning you walk the perfect line in in the <laughs> SDNY. So it sounds like you think that's true. That's the reputation. What's the impact of that reputation? Do you find in the world when you go in front of judges, when you have defense attorneys, are people, you know, a little cowed by you? It's a Southern District coming or do they want to, you know, take you down especially? Do they – do you, you know, come at them with a reputation for arrogance deserved or not? What You know, what what's it what, – what downside or just what's the general um, consequence of of wearing the big, you know – SDNY were aggressive T-shirt on your uh, emblazoned when you come into court. It's interesting. I think I, again. I think if you ask defense lawyers, where do you want your client to be charged? I think you never want to be charged federally as opposed to state, right? Because right. federal penalties are, are generally higher than the state. But I also think defense lawyers that I dealt with understand that we can be reasonable. That we don't take sort of angry, vindictive measures that we don't pile on. We didn't do these 88-count indictments, right? We, we would try to get our indictments sort of as narrow and tight and well-formed as possible. And I think there's a good amount of reason. I'm, I'm sure we all have stories like this, but I, I, I have many stories where you had a narcotics defendant who we easily could have, if we insisted on the mandatory minimums, do 40 years or 20 years. But you look at all the circumstances and, and try to do the right thing. I mean, I have very specific examples of that. I, I was mid-trial once on a case where the guys were going to go down for 25, 20, and 20 years. And my chief at the time, who's now a judge, uh, Ray Loyer, looked at the whole case and said, look, you're going to win this trial. I get it. But the right thing to do here is to give them a little less time. And that's what we did. Well, you so, temporized your aggressiveness in that one. Y- yeah. What does temporize well, mean? <laughs> you uh, moderated they, it? They know that in the Eastern District of New York. Um, yeah, you know. That's you, like if you use that word with a so, jury, you'd lose them. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> the, you know, well, it's, you, you need it for the Court of Appeals, though. The, um, you know, you weren't as aggressive as you could. We're, you're boasting now or whatever that you, you guys are aggressive. Yeah. That's part of your rep, et cetera. You've just given me an example where you weren't. Yeah. Um, Aggressive and, and where it, sound, it sounds like that. Where okay, well, we'll change the you know the t the t shirt motto. But where you, you're certainly considered aggressive. You agree yeah. with that? And so, when what are the consequences of that in front of a, our judges? Tougher on you? Do they give you like a like a stay with baseball? You know, if you're throwing them all good, you'll get a slightly bigger strike zone. The umpire will give it to you, or it might be. You know that it's, you, you've got a bigger cross to bear being from the Southern District. What's what's I, it feel like? I think it's really important to emphasize, and I, I think all three of us have said this in different ways. From day one, it is ingrained in you to be aggressive, meaning take chances on what you will charge, take chances with arguments you'll make. If it's the right thing to do, don't just be aggressive to be aggressive. That is actually. I think, completely counter to the culture there. And give Um, me the short definition of what it means to do the right thing. It, it means to not be aggressive where there are there is good reason to not be to to back off a charge to to not send someone to jail for the absolute longest time that you possibly could mm-hmm. or or try to because you know not seek the highest sentence because there are 
mitigating factors that that you see and you take into account. Sometimes that's up to the judge to make that decision. But we all know, you know, learn early on that in charging decisions and what sentence we seek, we as the prosecutors, and this is true of any prosecutor, have this immense power and you have to use it responsibly. And that's, by the way, I I think, and I think you want to get into this later, that's where we most often butted heads with Maine Justice and DOJ because there's guidance coming out of DOJ, as we all know, about how you have to charge things. And there was a memo that came out. I can't remember which DAG it was under. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Ashcroft memo? Is that what you're talking about? The memo that said you basically, you have to charge the highest highest possible charge you you can. And so that's an instance where we in the office might say, we don't think we should have to do that. And there's a reason for that. And so, you know, you start fighting with justice. And that's why justice looks at us and says, like, come on, people, like, get in line. You know, what's wrong with you that you're trying to use your prosecutorial discretion in charging, which, of course, you should be able to. But main justice is main justice after all. But that's, I think, one of the one of the tension points that we always had with Washington that, you know, would sometimes yeah. cause them to look at us. With well, them. well, you say main justice is main justice after all, but really, uh, you know, a big part of your reputation, the origin of the so-called sovereign district of New York, is that, you know, another attitude toward what you just said, Jen, is main justice is main justice. That means you salute and have to do what they say. And who? how would you ever think about uh, violating? And yet it's a real thought that, like, you know, a edict from main justice will be a recommendation <laughs> to the Southern District. And, you know, they maybe will, maybe won't. There's going to be a real tussle on your hands. T- you know, tell is that a fair reputation and how is it justified within the office that you're, you know, actually not following sometimes or going your own way on DOJ policy? It, it is it is a fair, I think, overall characterization. And again, some of it's just cultural. I was sort of taught from very early on, they are not our bosses. In fact, the only the only time Preeper are... And they are. Yeah, we, well, they are we, technically, we but, we, didn't, but we, Tec- don't, yeah. we don't recognize it okay. in some instances. I mean, the only time Preeper Ara got actually angry at me was... We had a visit from Lanny Brewer, who, who was, yeah. I think, chief of the criminal division at right. Maine Justice in D.C. at the time. And I said something like referring to Lanny as our boss. I think I said, well, our boss is coming up. Preach just said, Lanny Brewer is not your boss. Lanny Brewer is not my boss. <laughs> so that's just a, a sense of sort of the culture. But there are specific examples. I think Jen gave the best one. This memo comes down right. from DOJ saying, thou shalt charge everything to the max. And I don't remember ever giving that any more than just passing notice, nor did any of my chiefs at the time, I think I was in narcotics at the time, say, okay, we're all doing this. I mean, it would lead to absurd results. But well, we sort of. I can tell you, Bob, we had those absurd results when I was. Yeah, you know, I they, mean, we didn't. We bought, I mean, yeah. I don't think I ever charged everyone yeah. to the yeah. maximum of everything. Right. That would be right. that would be insane. Right. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, though, you're still a government attorney. You're still a government employee. You do have to follow. You know, for example, the DOJ rule that a president would, you know, should right. not be charged. Right. Like no one. There's in the mavericks, Southern, and then there's no like, one in the yeah. Southern District is going to go around that yeah. under yeah. any U.S. attorney. I, I, I think that's my personal belief. But, and that's because unlike other edicts, it's a super serious one or? Well, I, I think it's hard. I mean, like I said, it's it's not that you just ignore the, the other rules or the other guidance or the other policies. It's that there are, there's so much discretion that comes in the job that I think you can find ways to justify your way around them. This kind of a rule about indicting a sitting president, how, how can you find your way around that? I mean, they're just, you know. Well, he wasn't really a president. Right. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I can report, by the way, having been at Maine Justice as well as, as a U.S. Attorney's Office, there's a concomitant kind of fear of you guys. You know, if sometimes the deputy attorney general, whoever it may be, is going to have to, you know, really get uh, a argument going and, and go, you know, call Mary Jo White. And with anyone else, it's a straightforward thing. But like Mary Jo might really, you know, give them, give it to him with two barrels. OK, so, you know, you've now been out for a few years. You've given the whole sense of the culture there. I want to know if it feels about the same. In retrospect, do you think the SDNY, you know, called it true and right. Do you see as you sit here, and you don't have to document exactly, did you ever make, because you were the SDNY, either out of confidence or this aggressiveness, you know, a real mistake that you now regret? Of course. I mean, I I don't think 
anyone from the Southern District of New York would say that even given all these things that we're saying that we were perfect. This is it's about what you strive for. You know, I think I, as a prosecutor, I, as a supervisor, made probably wrong judgments. I mean, it's all about judgment. I, I saw other people make wrong judgments. It, people are human, you know, so it, it's not about being perfect. It's, it, we're talking about what we were taught to aim for and try for and strive for and, and what I think the office as a whole, um, at least under the U.S. attorneys I served under, did strive for. Well, and others, do you, you know, you don't have to tell us what they are, but feel like, you know, I kind of wish on that one I'd been more by the book EDNY instead of my SDNY handbook made me really go to far, not far enough, et cetera. No, I, I think like Mimi said, we've all made mistakes and things we wish, wish we would have done differently, but I don't think that's ever because we were Southern District. Right. To, to the contrary, I think sometimes being Southern District saved me from making a mistake. Um, I remember very early on I was getting – Why is that? Supervisory so get, structure? Or? Yeah, I'll give you an example. I, I had I had just tried my first case and early on there's this sort of anxiety about am I getting enough trials, right? Everyone knows it. Everyone's oh, not. right. That's a big thing with yeah. this, right? You can yeah. get a – you can go a few years and not get a trial right. was, because oh, they're so big. Yeah, yeah. and it was – oh, the, well, but even early on, oh, oh, the, the, the people up and down the hall from me have three and four trials but I only have one and you right. want to – right? Everyone knows their stats. Yeah. So I had just finished my first one and I was getting ready to try what I thought was going to be my second one. And and I can say that the, the person who supervised my first one was Rich Sullivan, who's now a judge on the Southern District, and he was a great supervisor. And I was getting ready to try my second one, and I just stopped by his office and said, "Hey, I'm getting ready to do my second case." And he, and he said, "Tell me about it." And I'll just long story short, it was a very shaky case that probably there was a much lesser disposition that was the right thing. And and I told him that, and I said, "But I really want to kind of get my second yeah. trial." Right. And he said. Whoa. Yeah. Like we don't do things so you can yeah. run up your right. stats and your record. Right. And it was yeah. the right thing to give this guy a much, much lower – I think it was a non-custodial plea, a probationary plea. And it was – in retrospect, now that I'm a little older and a lot older and a little wiser, it was absolutely the right thing to do. So I think there having that Southern District influence prevented me from making a mistake. OK. And you know, right now as you sit here – the a converse kind of example doesn't come to you. I can't you know. think of a time when we ever, when I was ever involved in anything that where we overextended because we had to be the big tough Southern District and got burned. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, I agree. I mean, yes, some regrets, I'm sure, plenty of mistakes, but you know, never felt like I did anything unethical. Never, you know, aired on the side of against a defendant's rights. You know, nothing like that. So can sleep well for that stuff. Yeah. Uh, by the way, so quick side point, I want to go back. You just mentioned, Ellie, everyone's aware of his or her stats. So in the same way, now you're in there, you're in this vaunted institution. Some people, some vaunted institutions, everyone's, you know, happy they're in it together. Some, there's a, a, a real strong competition that remains. What, what, was, what did the attitude tend to be toward your colleagues, uh, you know, about who's getting ahead of whom or what once you were in the, you know, paradise, was it all all kind of fine? That's a, that's a good question. And it's so funny because, you know, you would think it would be very competitive. And I really found that it was not. And part of that is because except for very, very early on where sometimes you'll try a case by yourself, you're always on a team. Investigations, trials, when you're in a senior unit, you're always on a team. And it's not like you're with the same person. So you're kind of, you know, you and your colleagues in your unit are switching around, working together on different cases all the time. So there's just this collegiality that I think extends, you know, far beyond any competition that there would be. And, you know, no one's on partner track. No one's making partner right, here. Right. Yes, there are supervisors who are made, but... Made, made like, made guys. <laughs> That's right, with a, with a very uh, comprehensive the uh, ritual. Right. And, uh, yeah. um, but, you know, so, so, yes, there is some sort of elevation that happens to people if they stick around long enough, which many people don't. Um, but it's not like you're at a law firm. I mean, Mimi and I were at the same law firm before the office, and you know, if you sent around an office-wide request for like a sample or something, people would ridicule you. It's like, why are you sending around a request for this kind of motion? Are you lazy? Aren't you going to do all the hours yourself to come up with this? Whereas at the U.S. Attorney's Office, constantly every day is like, does anyone have a you know motion to, to dis dismiss response on this particular issue? Because we're all sharing and helping each other. No one has the time to reinvent the wheel. And so that's just kind of how it was. And it's so true. There's such a team atmosphere there. I mean, Yes, there's friendly rivalry, and we oh, yeah, I've done double the trials of you. But it's yeah. I mean, one of the traditions at Southern District is when somebody is giving an opening address to a jury, a 
closing address or getting a verdict. An email goes around and our, our office is steps away from the courthouse and people would file into that room. And, and I'll tell you, like waiting for my friends' juries to come back and especially people I supervised juries to come back, I was yeah. just as nervous mm-hmm, as right. my own juries. It's like right. watching your kids play sports, yeah, exactly. right? I mean, you are pulling for each other and helping each other. And when you're on trial, there is this understanding that if you need anything, anyone will help you out. You can call a, a unit. Well, I'll give one story. So I was getting ready to try a five defendant human trafficking case. And my my partner, who I was getting ready to try this with, his wife was pregnant with twins. And us being guys, we didn't really understand timelines. We kind of roughed it out in our heads. And we're like, well, maybe she'll give birth towards the end of the trial. <laughs> so we front-loaded it for yeah. him and back-loaded it for me. Right. Well, guess what? His wife yeah. gave birth way, eight days before the trial yeah. on a Sunday. And the trial started the following you know, Monday. And so I sent around an office-wide email. Was this their first child? <laughs> uh, no, they had one. But this was yeah. the two girls. Who right. So um, – so I sent around an office-wide email saying I'm really thrilled to announce that so-and-so has had twin, healthy baby girls, beautiful, everything's good. In a related note, does anyone want to hop on a trial <laughs> with me, a five-defendant <laughs> trial that starts in eight days? And Mimi was a chief at the time. I was not. And she was like, I'll do it. I mean, I got 30, 40 responses from yeah. people at the highest levels of the office to people who were brand new and in no position to do this saying, if you're serious, I'll do it. And the person who ended up doing it with me, Lisa Zornberg, became sort of my – but she didn't know a thing about the case – and in eight days, she was up. I mean, I opened, but yeah. she was ready to go. Oh, oh, you gave the opening. I gave argument. the opening, but she was ready to go eight days later. And that's yeah. sort of the ethic of the office. People were willing to drop everything they were doing and jump into this emergency situation. So this is a little bit off topic. And then I, I want to return to maybe, you know, current day. But this is not SDNY specific, but another retrospective question. Now you guys have been out for, you know, at least a couple years. Anything about the whole system, you know, SDNY included, but, you know, looking at DOJ, the federal criminal justice system that at the time you didn't give any second thought to, you thought it was fine, but you now think, in fact, if you were the god of the of the criminal justice system, you would change and you see now in retrospect was a little unjust. Does anything like, does anything like that occur so, to you? I went. I had a different experience than than I think almost everybody who leaves the Southern District. And then I went to work for a state prosecutor. Right. I left right. The, from there. Okay. Yeah, I left the Southern District in 2012, and I spent the next five and a half years running the criminal division of the New Jersey Attorney General. So I went from federal to state, and boy, what a reality hit that was. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, we sure. Why? We, tell us well, I'll tell words. you a couple of reasons. We used to bellyache about our judges, like anyone would. I'm right. sure you did too, Harry. Right. But man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I would have given <laughs> to have one of them back, right? Um, the, the federal rules, the rules of procedure are so much better. The, the cases move so much more quickly and orderly than in state courts. But the one thing that, that really I think is, is my answer to your question is the sentences. Right, 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 right. Boy, oh boy. The sentences that you would routinely hand out in federal narcotics cases in particular – are through the roof. And when you get into the state system and you see the sentences, some of them are still outrageously high, but you realize like a, a case that would – a routine case federally, a, a routine drug case, you, oh, yeah, 87 months, 108 months, right? You remember these are like guidelines yeah, numbers. Right. I mean that's, that's an outrageously high sentence for state systems. And so I think I look back and I think, boy, that some of these federal sentences – and you don't realize yeah. it when you're in Is the Is that office. right? So you feel this now where you didn't – at the time you just sort of went, went through it. I do. I think, I think particularly in drug cases, narcotics cases, the federal sentences are outrageous and hard to justify. Yeah. Others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, and, and part of this is looking back, but it's also partly, I mean, I think we as a society are changing our views on, you know, ma- but mandatory minimums, particularly in drug cases, I, I think are too harsh. Interestingly, the other place where there's very high mandatory minimums that I did more work on at the end of my time there is in like child exploitation crimes, very high mandatory right. minimums. And I can't. Almost. And they're just they're, this is just Congress's judgment, right? Congress just lays them on right. in the statute. And, and yeah. whereas, you know, for example, gun crimes in general, right. very low sentences, right? So, I mean, a lot of this is politics and, and sort of, you know, people, Congress wants to look tough on, you know, who doesn't want to look tough on child exploitation crimes? Yeah. But whether that 15-year sentence is actually justified under the facts of each child ex- – and, I mean, I – you know, cannot think of a more horrible crime in many ways than 
child sexual exploitation, and I, I feel very strongly about those cases. But I don't think 15-year mandatory minimum is justified in every one of the cases that meets the statute. Right. Yeah, okay. I agree. I agree. Like like Mimi, I supervise the general crimes unit where the the child pornography cases come in. And, you know, some of those cases, they're horrible cases. But for someone who was just found with something on his computer to right, be in prison for 15 stuff, years uh, is right. really, yeah. really harsh. Again, this is a little bit different. And since you left, but we now have, I mean, Mimi averted to it, a pretty strong uh, attorney general, a different kind of U.S. attorney in place in the Southern District. So uh, we have, if you have current thoughts, knowing both about the sort of irresistible force of, of main justice and the immovable object or vice versa, you have this very strong attorney general who's, you know, hard to say uh, no to, and you, you know, maybe have a uh, more on board, less sort of independent, that's the wrong way to put it, but but more on board U.S. attorney. How how do you see that playing out now? Obviously, if Southern District wants to indict a president, that's going to be in trouble. But are there, is the overall dynamic likely to be different or will maybe the, you know, from the supervisory level and the agents on down, that people will find ways to do what the Southern District always has done and find creative solutions. Any any thoughts? Well, I'm very worried about this, actually. Um, and I'm interested to hear what Mimi thinks, having been there during sessions. But, you know, when Trump came in and started his almost immediate attacks on DOJ and on the FBI, it was really troubling. And, you know, it's only gotten worse. And sessions, at least to his credit, did seem to try to push back yeah. on those. Yeah. And so I thought, for, you know, most of the time of this administration until very recently, that at least DOJ was trying to stay the course. And it would be a relatively similar relationship between Southern District and DOJ as it had always been. Now with Bill Barr, I'm not so sure because for the first time, you know, I'm looking at my old shop, DOJ, and I'm concerned that that it's not being led by someone who has the best interests of the agency at heart. Wait, your shop or the or the whole DOJ? DOJ. You mean, you're talking about, okay. I'm talking about, yeah, DOJ. So, right. so, you know, I just worry that, you know, in the past, maybe you have the U.S. attorney arguing with Bill Barr about, you know, whatever right. it is, kind of yeah. your typical stuff, and we push back and they push and you. But now, you know, you have an attorney general who I think is not trying to keep DOJ where it should be, is not trying to push back against the president's attacks on DOJ, is willing to let the institution be attacked and have power taken away from it. And so that is really concerning. I mean, I think it's kind of heartbreaking for those of us who spent so much time in the Department of Justice to see that happening, at least for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm really see, concerned about I'm seeing about this. nods to either yeah. side of me. I mean, to me, it's not about that Bill Barr is such a strong, you know, forceful, hands-on attorney general. It's that he seems, uh, well, more than seems, I think has shown himself to be much more willing to carry out the political agenda of the president, right? And so before this wall that we that we all it just took for granted, frankly, that I mean, I'm not wall saying it was between whom between whom? politics and the attorney general, uh -huh. right? I mean, remember the I mean, there, there's so many examples in the past of public outrage where that wall seemed to be breached, and I'm not saying it never ever was, but Barr with his rhetoric, with his seemingly opening investigations that Trump purely, it seems, because Trump wants them, you know, into the origins of, of the Mueller of Russia investigation, things like that, that, that he seems so consistently not just willing to let the wall down, but almost, you know, just... just what wall? <laughs> right. Like, just he, he, he totally obliterated it. Yeah. And it seems like DOJ has become more and more a tool of the of the political rather than separate from it and pursuing things because of, you know, where the case is taken. So th that's the part about Barr that I, that well, I think we're Well, all right, but why about. is, and maybe I'll, I'll frame this to, to Ellie for last words, why don't we then have the, you know, Southern District of New York marinated in this strong culture? 
pushing back all the more. You must be afraid yeah. that, in fact, in your old office, there will be some kind of increased capitulation. Is that is that true? Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's two pieces of this equation. One of them is DOJ, and I agree with what Mimi said and Jen said. I think Bill Barr is different in kind from his successors uh, or predecessors President, as yeah. attorney general. Uh, we served under AGs as varied as John Ashcroft, Alberto Gonzalez, Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, and... Sure. Does everyone love, and I mean everyone in DOJ and in the public, love all of the policy initiatives they were forwarding? No. There's healthy, normal disagreement. While the Republican administration wants to wants to focus on this kind of crime, Democratic administrations want to focus on this kind of crime. That's that's how it should be. That's that's normal. But to see Bill Barr using the rhetoric of spying and no collusion, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's a red line that's been crossed, and investigating the investigators. Um, I think puts him in a completely different category. I also do not think it helps that really the top three people at Maine Justice right now, Barr, Engel, and, and Bench, uh, Benchkowski, Rosen. Yeah. and Rosen, yeah. I guess the, the top deputy, four, yeah. have combined tried a grand total of zero cases from yeah. the prosecutor's yeah. perspective, from a, from a criminal perspective. And so they lack that just background. It really does matter. Things I found, you know, for many office, as you come, you work your way up, you have someone who knows that what's going on in a trial. A hundred percent. And on the other side, if you look at the Southern District, all of the U.S. attorneys that I served under were, again, very different, but giants, I think, and, and seen as giants or became giants from Mary Jo White to Jim Comey to Preet Bharara, Mike Garcia, people who were seen as very formidable and who had recently been in the office within mm-hmm. the past, certainly the past decade, often the past five years, and had made major sort of groundbreaking cases in, in their time there. Jeffrey Berman, I don't know personally, but he... He has not been a prosecutor for 25 years. I think he was last there in, in the early 90s. He, he spent three years He's there. the current person. The current, yeah, the, the current U.S. attorney. So I think he's different, again, in kind from the past six or seven U.S. attorneys. And also he has this sort of strange status where he was never nominated by the president. He was never Senate confirmed. I don't know whether he's good or bad. I don't really know much about him directly. But he is in a different standing and status than his predecessors. Okay, so – Harry, one thing I think it's important for people to know is what the Southern District in Manhattan, the Southern District office, looks like, feels like, is like. It's a dump. <laughs> I mean, there, there's just no like nice way to put it. It is a very old building, I think built in the 60s. It has some really unusually uh, artwork in the lobby. It's this massive government-looking I mean, from the outside, it looks like it could be a jail, except it has big windows, I guess. It is filthy dirty. You can't drink the water, at least while we were there. Maybe this has changed. You you couldn't drink the water from the water fountains. They were all closed off because of the lead levels. There were bugs routinely kind of walking around your office. (laughs) There are bed bug infestations regularly. You know, the, the maintenance staff does as good a job as it can, but there's like you know years worth of dust and dirt just sort of ingrained in the furniture. It, it's just a really miserable looking place, except for the windows and the views and some of the offices. Air conditioners that are so loud, you have to turn right. them off because you, you just you can't you can't hear the person on the phone that you're <laughs> talking. You can't think. And I say this because. I actually think it's sort of part of the the culture there. It's almost a badge of honor. It's it's a point of pride that SDNA, SDNY pride, like bed bugs don't don't well, deter that, us. That, you know what? That I don't care what this place looks like. Right. I, I don't care. If, I, I am thrilled to get up and go to this dump of an office every day, notwithstanding what it looks like, because that's how important the job feels. That's how good the work is and how great the people are. And so you just become numb and immune and blind to it. And you think it's the greatest place, you know, no matter what. It it was always fun when you would have big firm lawyers who made many many multiples of our salary, beautiful suits come in to meet. And you go into a prop room with with actual mismatching furniture. (laughs) No um, windows. No windows. You guys must be really good to have an office like this. Right, right. right. One side of the office actually faces the MCC, the Metropolitan Uh Correctional Center. And there's some offices where – Inmates can see in, yeah. and, and if you had one of those offices, 
you would know and you would sort of be a little bit wary of that fact. And there was one story, speaking of the windows, you guys may remember this, but they decided they were going to put in brand new windows and there were these super high-tech windows that would... Bomb-proof. Right. If if there was an explosion, they would blow blow up out so they didn't impale the people inside. And they also kept heat and air conditioning in. And so it was this huge disruption. They would have to clear out our offices. It was really disruptive. They finally put in, it took months and months, all the windows. And then someone realized they put them all in backwards. Remember this? <laughs> and they had to redo it. That's so the government that, for you. So for a couple months, it, uh, the explosions would have come in. And they were doing a good job of keeping all the heat and air on the yeah. outside. When, and, and this was because of 9-11, these special windows? I mean, it was years I, later. I, I, this time I forgot to, to ask you about. Was there anything special about... Nine eleven, the uh, you know, I mean, here's SDNY, the center of the universe, and it really is. And I and think I think Jen and I could talk about this part for another, a, that's another a, episode, a long time. Yeah, um, I'll let Jen go ahead. Yeah, it, it was crazy. I actually was in Greece on vacation, so I was not there. But the office is very close to Ground Zero, and so we Blocks like everything else under Fourteenth Street were closed for I think about a week and a half. And, um, you know, so when it happened, there were kind of these phone trees that started, you know, supervisors started calling people to say, you know, don't come in, go home, we'll get word to you about what's happening next. So people who were at Mimi and my level didn't do much other than report when we were told to report. People who were senior, you know, there's a whole command center set up to deal with those emergency subpoenas and other things that started happening right away as part of the investigation of what happened in 9-11. So the terrorism folks had a command center and, you know, they obviously had certain judges who they were in touch with when they needed things from judges and they were working around the clock. I heard even... Like, I think Martha Stewart, like, came and brought a cake or something to them. It's like in the days before Martha Stewart was actually one of our defendants. She later became became prosecutor. But people kind of knew that this was happening and were very supportive of those senior folks in the office who were doing this literally around the clock command center kind of emergency work in connection with that investigation. So I I actually was there. I was there on 9-11 and headed to the office uh, came up the subway right after the second plane hit. And my instinct, though, was to still go towards the office. I did. Everyone who was there, including my now husband, who was a prosecutor there, who were coming out of the office. And we just had were told to just go north, go north, just walk. And so the entire office, you know, hundreds of people were were just walking north. Um, I walked to a, a, a colleague's house um, with a bunch of other colleagues who lived above 14th Street and um, we we watched on TV as the towers fell. Um, I then walked home to the Upper West Side, where I lived at the time, and and was trying to get a hold of FBI agents that I knew because we had heard that so many of them had gone down, you know, and we didn't right. know what had happened. There were there were these just frantic efforts. There were people from the Southern District of New York. Mary Jo White was trying to find certain people who worked in the office who had gone down. And and they they were safe, but there were some really tense moments. I actually did go back to the office before it was officially opened with about five other people. Um, they wanted to have a skeleton crew of people in the office. Um, it was it was nine eleven happened on a Tuesday. I think I was back there by Thursday, and we you know had to go below the barricades below Fourteenth Street. We walked around the office. Right, as I recall, New York at the time, it was downtown was shut closed down. down. Yeah. It couldn't go through no, we, tunnels. Well, we and, had cred, you know, yeah. credentials and right. got in. And we walked around the office with masks on because, I mean, it was still like there was, right. I mean, smoky. Uh, smoky. I mean, you could smell the chemicals. It was um, probably looking back, not the smartest thing to be in that <laughs> air. But, you know, nobody thought about that at the time. And I remember walking into the office and it was you know, like, like seeing this moment that clearly was just frozen in time because it had happened in the morning where people were at their desks, eating their breakfast, drinking their coffee, checking their emails. And so everywhere you look, there was this half eaten breakfast. half right, eaten, And right. it had this just very surreal feel. Yeah. Plus, you're looking through this like smokiness. And I'm not even sure what we were doing there. I, I, we were there to sort of help support the command center if it needed it, although they didn't really need us. It was truly this eerie, just horrendous, you know, and, and for months after that, my walk from the subway to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I'm sure this is true for you too, John, because of where you lived, you, you would pass, I mean, you could look down 
Church Street and see the 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 pile, you know, the, the ground zero. I mean, you could see the the just as you're walking from the subway every single day. You could smell it. You could see it. So it it was very much a part of the Southern District. You know, like I said, I started in February of 2001. This obviously happened in September. Um, a lot of things changed logistically. We got new identifications because right. all of a sudden they realized, wow, you know, we need to – there were barriers set up around the office. But it really also just heightened this feeling of what we're doing here is so important because this is one of the offices that's going to work on these kinds of investigations. Not that not that there was anyone to prosecute out of 9-11, but we didn't know that at the time and we didn't know if there would be more. Yeah, and everyone right. wanted in on that. I mean, I went up to organized crime and terrorism, which was a one unit at the time, I think in February of '01. And you know, Mimi, you came up there when it was your turn too. I mean, so many people just wanted to help, yeah. right, by that. being a part of prosecuting those kinds of cases. After that, guys, this has been a phenomenal discussion. I think I personally, but everyone who's listening will know so much more about SDNY and how they play in historically and um, and going forward. Thank you um, very much. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system and federal prosecutorial practice for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Matthew Flanagan. Thanks to Ashley Westerman and the Radio Art Studio on the Upper West Side in New York City. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.